0: expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT.
1: From ICRT, this is Hearsay with another round of real-life stories from your friends and neighbors in Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, and in this hour, we'll be listening to some of the stories told throughout the year at Taipei Story Slam events, all on the theme "Friend or Foe." Those times where we're just not sure where the other guy is coming from. Now, for those of you who have never been at Taipei Story Slam, storytellers are asked to prepare a seven-minute story based on a theme. They're also given a couple of rules. First, their stories have to be true, they have to be from personal experience, and they have to be told completely from memory. In keeping with the theme, friend or foe, in this hour, we're raising doubts, people, about other people, bringing you stories on questions like, can this guy be trusted, why have those girls been smiling at me so long? Is that guy quirky or straight up crazy? But first up, how can I trust you when I don't even understand what you're saying? Amelia Easton takes us on an international solo trek and learns that while trekking solo, you've got to get pretty good at telling the friends from the foes. Here she is, live at Taipei Story Slam.
2: So. One time, um, about two years ago, um, 7 a.m. in the morning, I woke up on a shelf on a train in Ukraine. It was just one of those days, I guess. We all have them. And um, when I say shelf, it was about yay wide, two meters off the floor, pretty difficult to sleep on. Um, So, yeah, I was woken up by the fact that most of my carriage companions were these Russian babushkas and their grandchildren. Uh, I don't know why. Um, Third class carriages in Ukraine are literally a corridor lined with shelves and you sleep on them. And so all these grandmothers had woken up with the crack of dawn and were eating apples And they were also drinking these cups of tea, which mysteriously materialized on trains, and I never found out where from in my entire time in Ukraine. These cups of teas just appeared. So I was really, really underslept because I was in a completely different country. There was Russian all around me. Yeah, I didn't know where I was. The whole train was shaking. Uh, I was worried I would fall off my shelf. And I really, really needed to pee. So I hopped off my shelf which was kind of difficult without breaking an ankle Um, no ladder and wandered towards most of the people seemed to be congregating which I assumed was the bathroom Uh, and by most of the people I mean a lot of really large hairy pot bellied Russian men all wearing like wife beater tops with hair poking out and the hairiest most stubbled noticed me and just started laughing. Like, where are you from? Um, UK? Ah, crazy English! He shouted down the entire carriage. <sighs> I didn't know what was going on. It was 7am. I was in Ukraine. I don't know how I got there. It seemed like a good idea because of all the rhymes of going to Ukraine on a train and coming back on a plane. <laughs> it's just like that. Uh, and this guy was shouting at me crazy English and then he started pointing at my feet and and slapping all his friends and they were all laughing literally doubled over laughing and um uh, yeah and I, I was in socks it turned out this was the hilarious thing was I was in socks and the bathroom floor of course was soaking wet because everyone had been in there washing their face doing god knows what else um And this made us best of friends, so he grabbed me by the shoulder, ignoring the fact that I was going to the bathroom for a purpose, and pulled me down the corridor. My wife, she will meet you. Okay. Uh, And his wife, it turned out, spoke amazing English, because she'd learned English at high school, because she wanted to read Hemingway in the original, which was lovely, and she hadn't had the chance to speak it until 40 years later, when FIFA came to Ukraine, and suddenly... Uh, loads of Brits and English speakers came to her hostel or hotel where also I was supposed to visit with my mother. I don't know why. (laughs) Um, So the man, the husband, and his Polish friend started talking in Russian, telling these filthy, filthy jokes, which she very, very selectively translated. (laughs) And at one stage the man clearly had a brainwave and turned towards the wife and said something very, very enthusiastically in Russian. And she looked at me, looked completely bemused, and said, he wants me to tell you that we have two sons. One twenty-five, one twenty-seven, both very nice, speak good English, very handsome. But I don't know why he wants me to tell you this, because they both have girls. So, (laughs) that's how I nearly became a Russian bride, and (laughs) A week later, I was on a bus in Crimea, down right at the bottom. Uh, It was Ukraine at the time. It is now Russia. And um, I was having trouble because my host spoke bad English. The bus driver spoke no English. And I was on the phone to the host for that night and handed the phone to the bus driver. And apparently I was supposed to get off outside the city in the middle of nowhere. I don't know where. The bus driver didn't know where. My host couldn't explain where. The bus driver was more confused than me. But this woman appeared sitting next to me who spoke amazing English. And again, I met three people in two weeks who were Ukrainian and spoke good English. So I am not exaggerating how lucky this was. And so we, she sorted my problem, which was amazing. And then we started talking. And when she heard I was from the UK, she was so excited because, ah, my husband, he is Bob Skinner. Ah. He is from England. He is from Lancashire. Um, he, he now he lives with us. He is amazing. He makes me feel like woman. No Ukrainian man. They make me do all the work. He makes me feel like beautiful woman. I ah, And she was so enthusiastic about this man. And of course, completely hating on me for traveling alone around Ukraine with no specific plan as a solo female. Uh, apparently, if I was her daughter, she would have killed me. And so she took my number and stayed with me until the host met up with me, which was lovely. Uh, And that night I got a phone call from Bob Skinner, who was very, very enthusiastic. He'd been here for six years and had never met another British person traveling around Ukraine or Crimea, specifically Crimea. And now he lived in the, the hills, in the hillside in Crimea, farming goats miles from anywhere else, And he was completely happy with this, and happy with his lot in life, and it could not be better. And I have an open invitation to go back there and farm goats with them in Crimea. And this is the moral of the story of why when you're traveling alone in strange lands, you should never, ever turn down the opportunity to talk to strangers for the fear they might be foe. Because I know that if ever I go back to Ukraine, I can find a husband and farm goats. And that can be my life.
1: That was Amelia Easton. She recently graduated from college and is a newcomer to Taiwan. She's working hard teaching English. Really hard, actually, from the sounds of it. After I spoke with her, I have a new appreciation for how hard new English teachers work in Taiwan. Kind of made me wonder, though, if she regrets not getting on board with that whole goat farming thing. Now, this next story is kind of on a similar theme. You know, the should we be trusting this foreigner theme. Except this time... The foreigner in question is, well, me. This is a story I told a while back at a Slam event. Thought I'd throw it in the mix. Here it is. So I think uh, pretty much the experience of living in Taiwan for me has just been that there's all these situations where there's all these things going on and there's about a billion ways that you could interpret them and you're never quite sure what is the correct way to interpret them. So here's a night where a lot of stuff happened, still not quite sure how to interpret what really happened. Uh, so at the time, I was going to uh, school at Shida, studying Chinese. Uh, so we often went to Roxy, uh, Roxy Rocker. And we got out, there, out of there at about 1 in the morning, uh, one night. And uh, just to get some food, we went to the 7 that was right next door. And I go inside, and... Uh, I'm getting ready to pay for my stuff. And I go to the counter and there's nobody behind the counter. So I start looking around uh, the store, trying to see if there's anybody inside. And after about two minutes, it becomes really, really clear that there's nobody, there's no people that work at the store in this store. The lights are on, the doors open, like there's like customers walking around, but there's no workers at all anywhere in the store. Uh, My friend who was with me at the time was a little bit more adventurous than me and he actually like went on down into the basement of the store and like kind of looked around to see if there was anybody down there. Nobody. There's nothing. Uh, And so we were a little drunk, so instead of like reporting it or solving the situation, we decided that we would stand in front of the store just to see what would happen. Because, I mean, if we just like compare this to how this would go in in the U.S., like, in, 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 uh, I'm from near San Francisco, so if in San Francisco there's a store where there's no clerks for five minutes in San Francisco, there's no store by the morning. <laughs> it's just gone. Uh, but as, as we watched, it became like, very clear that like, people, you don't really need like, the authority figure of a sales clerk to make stores work in Taiwan. Uh, we, we were watching, and people would like just over and over again, people would like, pick up their goods, walk around and they'd have one of two reactions when they'd re- slowly dawned on them that there was nobody in the store. They would look around, be confused. Either they'd put the good back or they'd go up to the counter and put money on the counter. Uh, and there was like this slowly growing pile of money on the counter. <laughs> like thousands of NT after a while. Nobody nobody even like looked at the pile of money. They're just like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I guess I would just add to it. Whatever. Um, finally, about four hours in, still like this pile of money is just growing and growing and growing. <laughs> finally, like this, oh, okay, about three hours in, what happens is a, a police officer comes, and we're like, finally, all right, somebody must have called the cops, all right, this is gonna resolve itself. Police officer comes, looks around, there's like a clipboard on the table, he picks it up, initials it, puts it back down, walks out. Doesn't ask any questions, this <laughs> is gone. Like, oh, okay, I guess that isn't going to resolve the situation either. Um, but finally, like, this delivery guy comes, and he's, like, looking around and uh, looking for somebody to sign it, and I go up to him, and I explain, like, oh, there's there hasn't been a clerk in here for four hours. And he says, oh, I should call the manager about that. That seems important. So he calls the manager. Manager calls the cops. About an hour later, the cops finally show up and... They think it's funny as hell. They think it's, like, the funniest thing that's ever happened. The crazy thing, though, is they didn't ask me and my friend to leave. Like, like, they got there, and they're, like, looking around, and they're, like, waiting for the manager to show up. And whenever a customer comes in, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, it's closed. There's, there's no people here, or, they're, 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 you know, there's no staff here. So they would turn new customers away, but me and my friend, we were just like on in in the in crowd for some reason, and we were just like hanging out with them, like chatting with them, like oh yeah, this is weird, right? Super weird. Uh, I tried to get a selfie with them, and they weren't down. That was like that was their limit. That was the extent of their niceness. Uh, Finally, the the manager did get there, and he was so thankful to me and my friend, and it made me feel like such an because we were just, you know, we were just being stupid Y and kind of, like, staring at the shop. But the, the the manager got there and was like, oh, thank you for looking after my shop. I really appreciate it. Keeping an eye on everything, making sure nobody was going to steal it. Thank you so much. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, no problem. My my pleasure. All in a day's work as a waigo um, So, so, finally, it seems like the cops kind of have it under control. We leave the scene, still don't really know what happened. Uh, About a month later, I'm packing up, I'm leaving Da'an. This is in the Da'an district, and I'm I'm leaving. And Before I go, I decide I'm going to make one more visit to the 7-Eleven. And so I I, I go into the 7-Eleven, and so this time there is a clerk behind the counter. And I ask him, I say, hey, you know like a month ago, there was like a night where there was no, like, clerk here? Do you you have any idea what happened that night? Does that sound familiar to you? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The clerk took all the money and, like, ran away. But we got him. Like, he's been arrested. I think that's what he said. My Chinese is kind of sh, so he might have said something different. Like, it's possible he said something totally different. But based on my best understanding of Chinese, that's what happened that night. Thank you. So... Was I a friend to that 7-Eleven? Was I a foe? I don't know. Well, anyway, there's enough honest people to get by without me. Hopefully. Alright, we're going to take a little break. Hearsay will be back in just a moment with more stories, and I promise, the rest are from people who are not me. Stay tuned. Welcome back, this is Hearsay. I'm Keith Mancone. If you're just joining us, today we're listening to stories from Taipei Story Slam, all asking the question what's behind that smile and face? Is this a friend or is this a foe? Up next, we got a story from American expat James Clunder about a let's call it a personnel issue he faced at
3: his job teaching English in Taiwan. Here's his story. So what happens, about two years ago, um, I was at a school, and I met a guy, um, his name is John, and he was a brand new teacher, a Taiwanese guy, about 6'1". Uh, it's kind of intimidating, too. You kind of think you're going to be a tall uh, foreigner, and you find out some guy is taller. It kind of puts you in perspective. So he was a, tar, a Taiwanese guy, and the first time I shook his hand, I don't know if you've ever done that, but you shake someone's hand, and they're actually physically shaking. It's a hand shaking, but they're actually shaking. It's kind of a nervousness, and it's kind of freaky and creepy the first time you do it. It's kind of wet and then shaking a lot. And it kind of made me nervous, too, because I could see that he wasn't wasn't really right. He was just maybe, I mean, I'm intense, but he is intense. So we meet, and then about, you know, for those, how many of you are actually uh, teachers? How many of you are teachers? Just, yeah, Right now is a kind of interesting time because we're working on reader's theater and we're working on drama. And he was actually teamed up with me to do uh, drama with the kids. So we finally, about three weeks after meeting, we got a chance to actually do the competition. We went to a school and we were having a good time. We were talking and we go and he says, let's take off for a while. So we take off and we're walking. He just takes off. I mean, he just takes off, and I'm thinking, where is he going? So he has his backpack, and he uh, takes it to the, an area to clean, and he starts cleaning his backpack. And it seems like a, a normal thing, but when you watch someone clean their backpack at a, in a, an event like that, you're thinking, what is he doing? It's, it's just so cr- Nobody does that. I mean, he was, it's not just cleaning, but it was like detailing. And I was wondering why he did that. I was thinking, first of all, it's shake, and then he... The, the one part that drove me crazy, and I think my story's more about Vinny than anything else, is that he was so intense about the backpack, it just made me wonder, like, you know, what did Dahmer do the night before? You know, why is it important to clean a backpack? <laughs> and about, about 50 minutes later or so, we were done with our activity, and it's customary for us to all leave together. So we leave, and I'm walking with him and the ladies are behind me and he's walking pretty fast. He's just that kind of, remember I told you he's intense. And so John uh, is walking with me and he's walking really fast. And I say, by the way, you're walking pretty fast. You know, why don't we just have a race? I was just kidding around, but he takes off. This guy is a, you know, a six foot one Taiwanese guy, but he takes off running and it was no joke. I mean, I wish some of the stuff was funny, but he actually took off like it was a competitive event. And of course I'm disqualified because I don't have a backpack. So I was like thinking, what are you doing? And I'm thinking, first of all, you're washing your backpack. Second of all, you're like seriously running. And what I mean by running is that we did not see him till Monday. It wasn't like he waited for us. He was joking around. So on Monday, he got back to school and he saw a lot of us talking. He was kind of, you can tell in his mind, he was thinking, okay, if you guys are going to talk about me, you know, you can tell he was, he knew who we were talking about. So during the days, uh, as, as we get closer to the end of the year, he started doing some crazy stuff. During meetings, he would complain. Um, he'd come with to me and say, I'm not your slave. You can't control me. I mean, stuff that, you know, stuff that is seriously, um, I, I don't know if all of you have been through it before. You, you can't make this. It's like Hollywood stuff, but it's not as funny or cool. It's like scary. So um, he would say stuff like that during meetings to the point where I was scared to go to meetings. And then worse is we were sitting next to each other and, the cubicles have a little bit of a crease. There's a, a, a borderline. And I put a fan down. Well, this guy comes in, I'm sitting down, and he goes, This is not the right spot. And he kicks my fan, I'm like, Hold on, what's going on here? It's just crazy. You know, someone's missing the screw when that happens. And during the year, these things happen a lot. He would just kick the fan. Or one time I was in a room, and I was actually putting up decorations. You know, sometimes they have heavy decorate classrooms. And he comes in there, and he actually comes in and closes the lights. I was like, what? I mean, I'm sitting, I mean, I'm just standing doing my work, and he comes and turns them off. And I go there and say, hey, uh, what happened to the lights? And he goes, I didn't know you were in there. Come on, see, come on, seriously. I mean, you could tell I was there. Everyone knows I was there. And I go, and he goes, why are you being so confrontational? The idea is, throughout throughout the year, we had problems like that. Um, Just stuff that you wouldn't normally have to deal with, but I did. And, you know, the management sometimes, the idea is that they want everything to be okay. You know, don't panic. As long as he, we'll talk to him, we'll talk to you. But actually, during the year, I figured out one thing. First of all... It's just too small of a place, so I started. I got with one of my coworkers. We decided to take cooking lessons. Or actually, baking lessons. So I got I got certified in baking bread. Uh, but I got certified. Yeah, that's right. A little something for me. Um, so I got a certification. I took salsa. I don't know how many you take salsa, but I took salsa for a couple of months, and that was terrible. But that's okay. And what's funny is. Uh, you know, not many people will dance with you if you're not good enough. It's actually a competitive thing. So I wasn't good enough to get partners. I took salsa, and then I um, took a lot of things. I started taking some uh, judo, which is not a big deal. But the idea is I started expanding myself. So I think about my time, really, and I look at it this way. No matter what, everyone around you really helps you out. They do help you out in one way or another. And I figured out, actually, he helped me because the situation was so bad. I had to find something to do outside of our area. And before I met him, I didn't do anything. I went home. I watched TV um i didn't play video games uh i watched tv i did I, I did some normal stuff i maybe jog but because of him i really expanded myself so i don't hope you have a john at your place i hope you don't have a john in your life but i hope you do expand your horizons and i just want to thank you for listening thank you thank you
1: that was james clunder he's lived and worked in taiwan for five years On top of teaching, he also writes stories. You can find his children's book, Anna's Amazing Machine, at public schools in Taipei, or, you know, by Googling it. So friend, foe, when you've got that extra barrier of, you know, different language, different culture, sometimes these things can be tricky things to sort out. And after the show, James told me that when he first got to Taiwan, he mostly hung out with local Taiwanese so I wanted to know if language was ever an issue.
4: He told me no. I think really it's it's based on personality. You know, if you're funny and you're outgoing and you and people trust you, wow, you can just use body language. There's a lot of things you can do besides the spoken word. I find I find as long as you get the right attitude, there's not you, you can meet someone that doesn't speak English at all and you can work on something and be happy with them. They can understand what you're trying to do. The key is they're not like you because you're English. they are like because of your personality. I've never liked them because they spoke English. Mm. I like them because like, I feel like I can trust them. And you can look at somebody's face and the way they act, and you can trust somebody. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when they open their mouth, it changes.
1: On the other hand, though, he says the language and culture gap does make a big difference in the classroom. He taught for three years in the U.S. before coming to Taiwan, and he says there's a lot of little things that were easier back at home.
4: If you're around people that speak English and they live in the U.S., you hear the a relationship, which means you live in the same country, you speak the same language, you pretty much go to the same restaurants, have sort of the same kind of hobbies. If you think about it, you know, when you, like enjoy going to the park. It can build a lot more relationship off your language because you already speak it. That's the primary way to communicate with somebody. So when you come to Taiwan and you're in a, in a class and you're trying to speak English to a don't speak English very well, you don't have that instant relationship. You have to build it.
1: All right, up next, we're going to hear a story from American expat Eliza Pennell about just what happens when romance goes global. Here she is, live at Taipei Story Slam.
5: Mine is a classic tale. Boy meets girl on OkCupid. Okay Boy's a bit awkward in person, but in a cool way, girl decides, and damn it if his freckles aren't nice to look at boy tells girl that he's moving to Korea in a few months just so she knows girls like who are you Mandy Moore from a walk to remember you warning me not to fall in love with you don't worry about it but they start catching feelings boy says he's falling in love girls like don't start that Korea (laughs) but they start that and it's perfect and it sucks and as promised a few months later Boy moves to the other side of the planet. He says, bye. He says, I love you. He says, not enough else in terms of where girl fits in. Uh, I'm the girl in this story, and I was confused. I was devastated in a way, but not devastated enough or not devastated in a clean enough way. So rather than just crying for a few weeks and buying out the campus store supply of Ben & Jerry's and getting on with things, I agonized over it and I thought about it ceaselessly. And I bought out the campus store supply of Ben & Jerry's. And I also received emails that alternately said things like, I really, really missed you and it was so difficult to be away from you for the first couple months. But I'm kind of over it. It's great. And I am still madly in love with you. You are my best friend. I need to see you. So, ignoring logic, ignoring my dwindling bank account, ignoring the little voice inside that was like, hey girl, what you doing? I chased a boy to Korea to South Korea. I would do anything for love, but I probably wouldn't go to that other place, even if I wanted to. Um, And when I got there, things were off. Uh, The best comparison I can draw I hate to liken this boy to my parents for several obvious reasons, but you know that moment when you're a little kid and with blind trust you reach out and grab your mom's leg in the middle of the supermarket and you look up and it's not your f***ing mom? (laughs) It was like that. He was not my f***ing mom. And I was staying with him for a few weeks. Towards the end of my stay... He flat out told me. He just wasn't feeling it. That night, he was gone for work. I went out with a few foreigners I had met through him. Uh, And I don't know if any of you are familiar with the 50 proof, cheaper than water, poisonous, sweetheart of Korea that is soju, but uh, it's fair to say that I got distinctly drunker than intended. One moment I was singing Wonderwall with everybody in a KTV room and killing it, I might add. And the next, I was waking up naked next to one of them in a strange bed. And that experience is not as funny as a Katherine Heigl movie will try to convince you that it is. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had to come to terms with the fact that that must have happened, despite you having no recollection of being part of that decision. Statistically speaking, some of you might have had to deal with those things, and I'm sorry, because it sucks. At the time, I felt so guilty. And I told the guy, my guy, and he was upset. He was very upset confusingly so ever the flip-flopper and I was leaving almost immediately so we very quickly tried to figure out what this meant how much we would stay in touch how we could still be friends we were important to each other and then he told me he had lost so much respect for me and I was like wait what (laughs) This? This is important to me? No, shutting this down. Uh, And it was such an absurdly, disgusting, ridiculously horrible thing to say to me that I was filled with a giddy relief. Relief at how big the world is. Relief at how full the world is of people who won't essentially spell out slut at me the moment I dare to sleep with someone other than them, if you can even say that that is precisely what happened. Uh, after telling me that they're basically done with me anyway. Uh, No, the world was big, much bigger than the very small person who was not a bad person, but who was deciding to be a junk person standing in front of me. And yeah, I knew the world is also full of people who will call me names, but this was a great reminder that I never have to make space in my life for friends like that. Thank you.
1: That was Eliza Pennell. She's another newcomer to Taiwan. So far, she's spent her time here teaching English and getting to know the island. Now, I wanted to put that same question that we just heard to her. Does the language barrier make it difficult to make friends? If you remember, James gave me an emphatic no. I got a somewhat different answer from Eliza. She says her weak Chinese skills has made it hard to meet as many locals here as she would like.
5: My Chinese is... Not really at a level where it's interesting to converse with me. But, I mean, I have made Taiwanese friends and other foreign friends.
1: So you've traveled abroad before. I mean, you, you mentioned to me that uh, you went to New Zealand for a time, and that's obviously an English-speaking country. Uh, so I'm curious, like, in terms of making friends, would you say that the experience there was really different from what you've experienced in Taiwan? Mm.
5: Been very different. It's been very different because when I'm in a country where I know everyone speaks English, I actually do enjoy approaching people, starting conversations with people, and I'm not confident enough to do that here all the time. I think it's just kind of crappy for me to go up to a Taiwanese person and expect them to speak English with me. But when I meet Taiwanese people through other people, or when Taiwanese people approach me, which does happen fairly frequently. It's been, you know, easy to make friends. It's just been different how it's happened.
1: So it sounds like Eliza has done a fair amount of traveling, maybe a bit of wanderlust there. Uh, I asked why. You know, why is she so interested in traveling? Normally, this is a pretty boring question, and I try to avoid it. But I really liked her answer, and I think it pretty well sums up why it is that so many storytellers have washed up in Taiwan.
5: I think part of it is that I do really enjoy storytelling and writing, and I have some experience dabbling in stand-up comedy, and I've always just been able to get better stories when I travel and the experiences that the stories come from are fun or terrible or transformative. So they're great by themselves. But also having those stories just feels really good because writing and storytelling is such a big part of my life.
1: So it sounds like what you're saying is that uh, you feel like your best material for story making, stand-up, whatever, uh, comes from traveling.
5: Yeah. And I think, you know, you only live once. You want the the one life you have to be the best material.
1: All right, time for one last break. Hearsay will return in just a minute with more stories of friends and foes and quite a few shifty folk who fall somewhere in between. Stay tuned. You're listening to Hearsay and ICRT-FM 100, bringing you stories that ask the question, Be ye friend or be ye foe? As always, our stories are coming to you straight out of Taipei, right from a little group called Taipei Story Slam. Now, if you like what you're hearing, you really do have to make it down to one of their shows. They've got a whole lot more stories just like this, with new shows the last Thursday of every month. You can learn more at Taipei Story Slam's Facebook page. Our next storyteller is Jane Wong. Her background's a little complicated. Bear with me. Jane was born in Taiwan, but grew up in the U.S. She's back in Taiwan now, working. But this story is from a number of years ago when she was living and working in Japan. Okay, you got all that? Either way, here she is, live at Taipei Story Slam. Hi, everyone. Hi. So, this story uh, goes
6: way back. Years ago, when I was fresh out of graduate school, and I was about to start my first real job in Tokyo. So yeah, that was back a lifetime ago, you know, I pranced around in um, high heels, and my office lady wear, and um, and it was like, you know, I walked into like tall skyscrapers every day, (laughs) very different life from now. And... I was really excited to get my first real income. That was very important, very important to me, you know, to the first chance to live in foreign country and so all these exciting things. And so, my boss, his name was Hashimoto-san. So he, you know, he invited me to a couple dinners and like um, one of them was like in his hotel suite. And I thought, okay, he's kind of um, like a ladies' man, but okay, maybe this is just how things are done in, in Japan. So I, I just, he's going to be my boss. So, and so you know we start our first week and, and everything's going well. Me and all my colleagues. And so, Friday rolls around and I'm going out with my friends to have dinner. And you know they have friends come from San Francisco. We all go out to KTV. And then we miss the train and we're out in Roppongi. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys, yeah, so you know you know Roppongi. That's all the it was where all the foreigners hang out and. Is all the classy bars, and restaurants and also not so classy ones. And um, so we end up at gas panic, some of you might know.. <laughs> yes. And you know it's, it's really kind of seedy and crowded and you know the first floor is so okay. So some of my friends and I we kind of wander up to the second floor to take a breather, look in and uh, get to the, the bar, order a drink, sit down, turn around. I'm just sipping my drink. There's a there's a Japanese salary man with a, a Russian blonde chick. They're really really drunk. It's like 2:30 a.m. I'm sipping my drink. Oh my god! I think that guy looks really familiar. So I I run to the corner just I'm like just to make sure. That's my boss. <laughs> uh, and I'm just making sure. And I'm thinking, oh, he has like a he has a he has a wife and and two kids in another prefecture. <laughs> okay, so my friends and I are looking at me like, What why why are you running into the corner like that? So I'm just like, okay. I get back there, I'm like, Okay, let's go, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> no, why? Mom, oh, we just got up here. And so I get down and um I tell them they're like you know Ken, my friend Ken's like, what's what, what's going on? And I'm like oh you know that was my boss. He's like oh you should have just gone up to him and you know hey Hajimoto-san what's up? And then you would have had really good blackmail for the future. And uh, I was like that was a little, I just wanted to keep my first real job <laughs> and it didn't want it to be awkward. And so uh, a couple couple weeks later and very personal Japanese style, so he sits me down. He's gonna go to Taiwan to visit, um, for a business trip, so he's like, uh, I would like to meet your parents, because I heard that, so you know, I, I know that you really respect your father, and um, I hope that my daughter respects me just as much. And I'm thinking, oh, he, oh, only she knew. <laughs> so that was, that was my introduction to Japan, and to how things are done in Japan. And also, uh, the lesson was, if you know, no matter how big of a city in the middle of Tokyo, just don't do anything bad, because you will get caught, and you may never know it. Thank you.
1: That was Jane Wong. She's a cross-cultural trainer working at a number of places in Taiwan, including the Community Services Center. So she's worked in the U.S., Japan... Taiwan, as well. And obviously, no matter where you are, work isn't just work, it's also people. You got to stay friends with people. You don't want any foes. So I asked her if she ever ran into any problems dealing with all these different cultures. Here's one of her examples. She told me that in Japan, in particular, the hierarchy of the companies was a bit of an issue and took a little while for her to understand.
5: When
7: I was first there in Japan, I was having a discussion with uh, what they would call senpai, so somebody who was a bit older than me. But we were on the same team, and I didn't know at the time that I was supposed to defer to him or, or be very respectful. I've since learned all these things. <laughs> but at the time, I was just coming from an American's point of view. If I didn't understand something, I was quite assertive, or you know, I would ask questions, or I treated him like an equal uh, without realizing that, first of all, he was older than me, and second of all... He had been at the company, obviously, a lot longer than me. So the whole attitude with which I approached him should have been different.
1: But she says uh, when she was hired, you know, they knew she was an American. So there was a support network in place for her.
7: I was lucky to have that. Otherwise, I might have been booted out a while ago. But yeah, I think I made a couple enemies because of that. Uh, But later on, later on, I think they were okay. That's the thing about a Japanese company, which it's kind of like being... In college or at school, maybe even smaller than college, where you kind of know everyone and you might get upset about certain things, but you kind of see each other so much and work with each other anyway that you kind of forgive one another, you, you just work on stuff together and, and in the end you're okay.
1: <laughs> Since then, like I said, she's started working as a cross-cultural trainer here in Taiwan, so I was pretty sure she must have some thoughts on how she could have, I don't know, made that cultural transition a bit smoother for herself. So I asked her what she would now tell somebody with the same problem she had then.
7: Well, that's what I do in my cross-cultural training work. First thing is to help somebody be able to see their own cultural values, even in communicating. So, for example, in the example I gave, right, I value equality, right? I valued direct communication. And to be able to step back and go, hey, that is a cultural value. It has been reinforced by American values because that's where I grew up. And then saying, okay, where does Japan come from? And where and why do they value what is actually a very nasty word in English, this thing called hierarchy, right? Why do they value this? And, you know, why do they value this sort of more indirect communication? So you kind of take a look at that, um, and then you also... Inform them of the entire world view from which the other culture they're entering is coming from. Help them see that, oh, the world they're stepping into is an entire world, and it's very internally coherent. It makes sense in that world why you would behave that way. And when you're entering that world, it doesn't mean that you have to give up yourself. You just need to learn new skills. Think of it as expanding new skills to be able to actually communicate more effectively hmm. instead of just ob- only using your own way. Hmm.
0: So that's what
7: I would have liked to have been told. Um, but if you had just told me, be indirect, you know, you know, respect your elders, you know, just if you just told me that, it would have been hard to swallow.
1: That was pretty good advice, gotta say. Hope all you cross-cultural worker bees out there were taking notes. Last up today, we're going to be changing things up a little bit. This one is from Canadian expat Brandon Thompson. He's a frequent contributor to the show, and he was nice enough to stop by the ICRT studio to tell us a few stories about life in Taiwan. In the studio that day, listening in, is uh, myself, along with ICRT DJ Joey C. So there's no audience per se for this one, but don't be surprised if you hear us giggling in the background. Now, just so you know, the story we're about to hear is secondhand, not about Brandon. actually happened to a friend of his. And just to set it up for him, the story starts with uh, two expat guys working down in Elan, eastern Taiwan. They just got off work, walking down the street. I'll let Brandon take it from here.
0: After teaching, I think it was like 8 o'clock at night, they, went to a, they were looking for a bar, and Elan was small, not very many bars. So they found this one bar because it had a Heineken sign outside down to the basement they went downstairs started drinking laughing enjoying themselves they had three beers each maybe two or three anyways they finished they finished drinking at around like just after 10 or whatever went over to the bar and they were like okay we'd like to pay to go and they were like no problem $4,800 he was like what are you talking about he was like $4,800 that's what you owe he's like but we only had like six beers that's Here's, you know, here's whatever. This is this is what we owe. Like, no, no. And he brought a bat out from behind the bar. and They said, no, you owe more than that. See those girls there at the table? There were a whole bunch of tables pushed together. And there were girls at the end of the table that were g- girls that, that, you know, you supposedly buy drinks for. They were ordering drinks the whole night and just pouring them on the ground. <laughs> and they were ordering ladies' drinks. And I guess ladies' drinks are more expensive. So, basically, uh... He was like, there's no way we're paying this. And he goes, oh, you're going to pay this. They had the bat. And it was a friend of mine who was a bigger guy. He's like 6'4", 250 pounds. And the other guy was skinnier. And they they ran outside the bar. The skinnier guy went one way. The heavier guy went the other way. And, of course, the, the three guys at the bar ran out, and they ran out after the guy who was heavier, because, <laughs> you know, may as well catch one of them. So they, they ran after him, and they were they ran for like three four blocks. They caught up to him in one of those small little community parks that's there, and he was like, he got, of course he's big, so he's winded. <laughs> he's like exhausted. He's like, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to, I'm going to stand my ground. He, he stands there, and the guy with the bat actually surprisingly puts the bat down, and they just start going, uh, they, they start fighting. Now of course it was crazy, but he was like, I I was winning. I was actually winning. Like I was holding my own against three guys and I was feeling really good. Like I one guy would come in and I boom, I'd nail him in the face. He'd go down and then another one. They would they were waiting their turn, almost like they were like they were choreographing something. <laughs> it was like, he was like, this is I felt pretty good for myself and it must have been like a minute or so I was winning, and all of a sudden I turned around again and I just felt a crack. On my face, because one of them had picked up the bat and cracked him, and then he woke up in the hospital, and he still remember. He says he was getting stitched up by the mm-hmm. doctor, and he woke up and he, and he saw in the waiting room with him was the gangster from behind the bar sitting there in the in the in the room with him, and he woke up and he's he gets he gets startled. He's dead. he like sits up and he's like, what the hell is happening right now? Then he said he, he could still see the needle hanging from his from his forehead. And the, the gangster was like, through the doctor's translation, the gangster was like, You must understand why we did that, don't you? He's like, We want to make sure you're okay, but we want to let you know that you can't steal money from us. And they were like, He was like,
1: What? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're stealing money from me? But it's also amazing that, that you can get your ass kicked right. and somebody will take you to the hospital. I mean, Tell me how he's doing. Is he okay? Is he okay? I got him these flowers. <laughs> is the card too much? Sorry I kicked your ass. <laughs> but really I'm not.
1: <laughs> Did they take all of his money in the end?
0: Uh he, he ended up paying them back. And, and then he actually went to that bar a couple more times because they were they apparently they got a better relationship, you know. It's crazy like like because he took him to the hospital. It's like it's it's weird. It it is weird, you know. Yeah. To have that happen. It was kind of a like a it's almost understanding. like there's a, there's a guidebook for like gangster etiquette, and he's like, we had to do that because it's right here. It is. That's, <laughs> that's exactly other what than it is. They have like things. a code like everybody else. This and is what tied. we do. Yeah, sorry, got to do this right now. <laughs> Gangsters, man.
1: Once again, that was Brandon Thompson. He performs in a band right here in Taiwan. It goes by the name Adoa. Check them out on their website, adoaband.com. That's A-D-O-G-A band dot com. All right, that's it for the show today. You can let us know what you thought of the program by leaving a comment on the ICRT Facebook page or on our blog. This is actually the last show for a while. It's rounding out the four-week run we had planned for November. If you want to continue hearing the program, please do shoot us an email or send us a comment. Let us know. And if you missed any part of the broadcast, you can find it online. Look for that on the ICRT blog or the Taiwan Talk podcast stream available on the ICRT website and on iTunes. Big thank you to all of our storytellers today. Also want to give a thank you to Taipei Slam founders and organizers Sean Scanlon and Mandy Rovita. The show today was produced by myself with production assistance from Pingping Liu. Thank you for tuning in from ICRT. I'm Keith Menconi. Until next time.